very excited about having some time with you today. We um, want very much to do a better job of connecting with the churches at Union, out of our department specifically. Uh, to be honest, in, in the past, we, we stay very busy with the various kinds of uh, things that God has given us to do with our students, with ministries in various places overseas, uh, the writing that we're trying to do. But uh, in the past, it's been easy to say, well, we have a church relations department, which we had a group of people who were trying to reach out to the churches uh, our department is in a phase right now where we are wanting to be much more integrated with the local church because the fact is you folks in the local church uh, throughout the Mid-South region and, and over here in, in Middle Tennessee are on the front line of ministry. You are an extension of, or we are an extension of your ministry. Union is really supposed to function as an extension of the ministry of the churches. So we're trying to do more things like the conference that we're having today uh, to minister to you. I hope this will be a day that will be encouraging to you. Uh, we are going to overview 2 Corinthians in four sessions. So if you can imagine uh, walking through the mall and the uh, person standing in front of the Chinese restaurant there in the mall with a uh, bourbon chicken or, you know, uh, pepper chicken on a stick, holding it out to you to give you a taste to try to draw you in. That's what we're trying to do today. Uh, I just want to give you a taste of uh, the book of Second Corinthians, give you a sense of how the whole fits together, uh, but, but draw all of us in to a deeper study of this amazing book. It's a, a wonderfully complex book, but it's also a book that is so rich for those of us who are in ministry, who want to be used by God to advance the kingdom in the world. Uh, because Paul wrote Second Corinthians, we'll see, out of a, a time in which he was very bruised in his ministry, deeply bruised because of the circumstances uh, he was caught up in. And, um, and so he speaks to us about the nature of authentic ministry. And when you're going through times that are tough, difficult, you're having to kind of stay the course over a long period of time and deal with um, all kinds of people who are problem people. I'm sure none of you have problem people in your ministries. But, um, but Paul is, is a wonderful model for us of how do you stay in a place where you are walking with the Lord, you have your perspective where it needs to be, uh, you're trying to relate to people in a way that is wise given the cultural context that you're dealing with, but you're really trying to live out biblical principles in, in the midst of that context. And that's, that's really what Paul models for us. Uh, let me tell you a big picture of what we're going to try to do. In the first session, we're going to talk about issues of introduction. Uh, it's, to me, it's not as exciting because we're not getting down into the details of the text, but it's very important to understand the backdrop of why this book was written and what Paul was trying to accomplish. We're going to look at an overview of the book to try to understand kind of how 2 Corinthians moves. I think that 2 Corinthians was written probably while Paul was traveling, while he was uh, coming back around, moving back towards Corinth but was in a period where he was, he was on the move. And he's dealing with various reports that he's hearing uh, from Corinth. So the, the book can have a sense of being a bit fragmented uh, if you don't know what's going on. So we're going to look at kind of the big picture movement of the book. 
and then finish up this first session by talking about the relevance of Second Corinthians today. And I want to get you involved in that conversation a little bit. The other three sections uh, that we're going to try to do today uh, will take a, a movement in the book and we'll go through and I'll talk about how that section of the book works. And we'll, we'll look at the development of the units within that section. And then we're going to come back and zero in on a couple of those units to try to get a sense of the richness of what Paul is doing in that section. So with each of those three uh, movements, we're going to look at big picture and then come back and zero in on specific passages that I hope will be encouraging for you as uh, we just open our hearts and our lives to the word today. Okay, does that sound okay? All right, well, uh, looking forward to us just having some time and want you to feel that this is uh, somewhat informal. I want you to ask questions and uh, interact as we go along. All right, so let's get started. Uh, last few years, I've had the opportunity to be involved in a ministry that goes into uh, China. We started out in mainland China, and about four or five years ago, we got kicked out of mainland China. We, our ministry was actually raided. Uh, what we do is we go and we meet with house church pastors from about 20 different provinces in China, and we're trying to give them a very high-level seminary-type education so that they're grounded in the Word, grounded theologically, because, as you know, the church in China is booming. Uh, estimates are about 80 to 100 million believers in the house church movement in China. And so ours is one of many ministries that goes into China to try to provide education, but uh, we were in uh, Shanghai area. I was not present at that meeting, but we had about 45 policemen come in and surround the brothers and sisters, and uh, they were completely unintimidated. They, uh, the three hours while the leaders were being interrogated um, off, you know, out of that main room, they were singing hymns and preaching the gospel to the policemen who were surrounding them, and uh, it, it was just kind of an amazing moment. But we now meet in Hong Kong, and uh, the brothers and sisters come to us from mainland China for uh, intensive eight-day seminars twice a year. And over a six-year period, they can get an extensive education. Now, I want you to imagine one of those pastors. This is uh, not his picture on the screen. Um, but just imagine a pastor in Beijing. And he has actually been detained in Beijing and he hears, he begins hearing reports from the house churches that he has back out in western China. If you go to western China today, it's very much like stepping into the book of Acts. The first time I went and taught uh, the brothers and sisters there, I was with a group of about 25 from western China. And it, it was amazing what God is doing in their midst. Uh, they are seeing people healed just on a regular basis. They're dealing with the demonic. Uh, it, it is really incredible uh, the number of people who are coming to Christ. And so imagine that this pastor hears from house churches that are in a region out there in the West, and he hears that those house churches are being infiltrated by uh, perhaps people from Eastern Lightning, which is one of the dominant cults in China at this point, what would you do in that situation as a pastor? 
you're detained, you can't get to them at that point, what would you do? Or think about your situation. Most of you are probably here within an hour, hour and a half drive of Goodlettsville. And imagine that you, for some reason, were away from a church perhaps that you planted, maybe a church that you have been ministering in, but for some reason you are not there presently. Maybe you have a sabbatical that you're away for a few weeks or something like that. And you hear that one of the small groups has had some teaching come up over the past few weeks where someone has gotten hold of a book and you're deeply concerned about kind of the trajectory of what you hear taking place in this small group. What, what would you do in that situation? How would you address the situation, especially if you couldn't get back immediately? And if for some reason uh, just using email or messaging or something like that wasn't working very well for you, it's hard to address issues like this over technology, right? Or I think of uh, students that I've had in the past. Uh, We are blessed with amazing students at Union University. And some of them are uh, sitting right here, people who have graduated in the past and God is using. But, you know, every now and then I hear of a student who has come through in in the past and uh, hear that this student is drifting theologically. Uh, Maybe they have gotten caught up in some of the main... uh, cultural issues that we're dealing with today. Uh, Someone is teaching uh, things about the practice of homosexuality, for instance, and this person is is embracing uh, just what they're reading on the Internet, uh, the audios that they're listening to, the books that they're reading. And this student is off somewhere. I've, I've not had contact with that student in a while. What do you do in that kind of situation? What do you do? Well, in a very real way, Paul is dealing with this kind of very difficult situation where you have uh, the church in Corinth dealing with issues. Uh, It's probably about the winter of A.D. 54 or 55 at the point that 2 Corinthians is written. Um, What has happened is that a group of false teachers have infiltrated the church and Paul describes them as people who are uh, using the name Jesus but they're actually teaching another Jesus Uh, they are preaching another gospel and they are driven by another spirit rather than the Holy Spirit so these are false teachers who have come to town Um, I think and we'll talk about this a little bit later I think they are people who Uh, Their mode of ministry, their style of ministry very much fits the cultural context of Corinth. And that's very important to understand about this book. So they are people who come in and they they speak the language of the people in Corinth. They dress like them. They uh, They are promoting values that just resonate with the people who are there in Corinth. I mean, it's just very easy for the people in Corinth to to hear these uh, people speak and to say, oh, yeah, that that rings true for me. And so Paul is dealing with these teachers who are using the language of Christianity 
And yet, because of what is being manifested in their lives, what they embody in the way they do ministry, how they live life, how they think about the gospel, Paul knows that it's not really the gospel. And it's not really Jesus who they're serving. And so Paul is confronted with a situation where these very attractive, effective ministers have come into the church. And Paul is away. He's traveling. And he is not able to get to them yet. And so what he does in this situation is he writes to this young church. Think, think about the fact that the Corinthian church is not even five years old yet. So very, very young believers, very, very young church. And Paul writes 2 Corinthians really to lay out for this body of believers a pattern of authentic ministry, a guide of uh authentic ministry that they can follow. So what 2 Corinthians is, uh, it's, a, it's a book in which Paul is going to try to connect with them by explaining the decisions that he has made recently. He's going to use the center section of the book to model for them theologically what authentic ministry is really all about. And then he's going to try to deal very practically with issues like giving to the collection for Jerusalem in dealing with these false teachers in chapters 10 through 13. So let's, uh, let's begin by just reviewing a few things about Paul himself at this time in his life and ministry. And then we want to, um, to look at Corinth and talk a little bit about the city of Corinth and especially the leadership values that they had in Corinth during this time. So let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about the Apostle Paul. And um, I want to focus on three descriptors of Paul. First of all, Paul was a man of the Greco-Roman world. Was a man of the Greco-Roman world. Uh, he is a guy who was a Roman citizen, as you know. We see that in Acts 22. Um, but he was Jewish, very devout Jew, had... Um, grown up in Tarsus, probably moved there from Galilee. At least that's one of the traditions that his family had moved from Galilee to Tarsus. Uh, and then Paul, as a young man, grows up in Tarsus for a good bit of his uh, time that he's growing up. Yes. Um, a little bit. We're going to have to kind of keep moving, but go ahead. Well, that's church tradition, actually. It's not, there's not textual evidence in terms of, of the text of Scripture, but uh, there is church tradition that would suggest that that's a possibility. So, yeah, no problem. Thank you for the question. So Paul is uh, growing up in Tarsus. Tarsus was a prominent educational center of the world at that time. If you think about top, you know, where you think of top universities, um, We've spent some time over in England in recent years. And so you think about places like Cambridge and Oxford, key centers of learning. For the world at that time, the Mediterranean world, Tarsus was one of the top places that you went to be educated in the Greco-Roman world. Uh, Tarsus was also 
a place that was known for its uh, flax. The type of linen that was woven there was a very special kind of fabric. Uh, they, uh, Tarsus was located on a fertile plain and was known specifically for um, material called silicium. And um, understandably, Paul kind of grows up in that context. He becomes part of the tent maker trade, which was a major trade in the Tarsus area. Now, the cool thing about that in terms of his occupation of tent making was that this was a, a trade that was portable. Uh, it was universally needed. So think about the fact that Paul could travel all around the Mediterranean world, land in almost any city, set up shop down in the town square, and have people come to him that he would be able to interact with. I can imagine that at times Paul would have been sitting uh, in his tent, uh, his shop area that he had set up with bolts of cloth, and you could almost imagine people coming in and having a seat, Paul showing them some hospitality, and begin speaking to them about Jesus. So he has an occupation that is uh, portable. It is something that people would need not only for the building of tents, but for awnings over shops and all kinds of things. So he is a guy who is very much a part of his culture. He's very well educated in terms of his culture. And he is going to uh, use this background to reach out and do cross-cultural type of ministry and evangelism as he goes around the Mediterranean world. Second thing about Paul, though, is he's a Messianic Jew. He is a Messianic Jew. Uh, last January, I was in Israel and uh, was my second time there teaching pastors who are Messianic Jews. The difference is last January, I taught a class in Nazareth on the book of Hebrews to Jewish and Arab pastors together. You're talking about a mind-blowing experience, and I may tell you a little bit more about that. But it, it was amazing to see this group of Jewish and Arab pastors loving each other, having fellowship together, and yet the cultural differences between them. There were things that came up in our discussion, very, very, very interesting time. But uh, it's affected me to go to Israel and to see Jewish believers in Israel who are raising their hands and praising Yeshua as Messiah. First time I taught Hebrews to a group of students there, we got to the end of the class and they wanted to sing Ram Banesah HaMashiach, High and Exalted is the Messiah. It's, it's just incredible. So Paul has not changed religions. It's not that Paul was confronted on the Damascus Road and changed from being a traditional Jew to being a Christian. Paul sees himself as a fulfilled Jew, as a Jew who has met the real Messiah, the hope of Israel, and been transformed by that experience as he has experienced Yeshua, Jesus, and been changed and sent on a commission to go out into the world on a mission with Yeshua. I wish we had more time to talk about that. I'm going to be doing a conference down at Brentwood Baptist Friday night and Saturday on the trajectory of key themes in Scripture. And uh, it's, a, um, it's an exciting thing to see how Jesus fulfills those themes of kingship and tabernacle, temple, 
Um, it's, it's amazing to see how all that comes together. And so Paul, being confronted with Jesus on the road to Damascus, uh, suddenly sees that all of this scripture that he's been studying in the Old Testament comes together and is fulfilled in Yeshua. So he is a Messianic Jew. He's uh, just driven by this understanding that what God is doing is God is moving things forward in the world with the gospel for the advancement of his kingdom. And Paul is living out of that reality. But then also Paul is a uniquely called apostle then. That's the third thing about Paul. Uh, Paul specifically is driven as a missionary to the Gentiles. When he was confronted by Christ, he was called to this ministry. And he says, I'm like an apostle born out of time. I'm, I'm you know, different. I came, I came to this differently than the other apostles did. But he is appointed by Jesus um, Paul Barnett says that Paul saw his own role more distinctly than any other leader we meet in the New Testament apart from Christ himself. Uh, based on the Damascus events and his subsequent career, Paul appears to have regarded himself and his life's life work in fulfillment of a number of Old Testament texts, uh, including passages like Isaiah 49, 6 and 42, 6 and 7, which talks about the servant who would come as a light for the Gentiles, right? Now, he doesn't see himself as the servant. He sees himself as the servant of the servant. But Paul sees himself as fulfilling, helping fulfill the ministry of the servant Jesus as Paul then lives under the lordship of Christ to bring the light of the gospel to the Gentiles, which is right there if you go back and read Isaiah 40 through 66, it's filled with references to the nations being brought in to the kingdom. And some of that is forward-looking to the new heavens and new earth, but a lot of it is inaugurated in the ministry of the church. And so what happens is Paul comes as the apostle who is uh, reaching out to the Gentiles And in that ministry, he now is working his way around. You remember on the second mission trip, Paul had come around to Corinth and there planted the church to the Corinthians. And we're going to need to talk a little bit about the the immediate backdrop of the book of 2 Corinthians in just a few minutes. But first, let's talk about Corinth itself. So let's think for a few minutes about the city of Corinth. Uh, Corinth was uh, a city that goes back several hundred years prior to the time of Paul. It always was a strategic location because of its location on uh, an isthmus uh, down in Greece. And it became kind of a, a center point of economy in the Mediterranean world. We'll talk more about that in just a minute. But it was strategic back in the Greek period. Um, It eventually is going to be crushed by a Roman general named Mummius. Uh, He came and he sacked and he burned the city in 146 B.C., just destroyed it. And uh, it was about 100 years before the Romans would go back in and revive the city of Corinth and make it a Roman colony. Um, in terms of the kind of the psyche of Corinthians during the time of Paul, 
They very, very much wanted to see themselves as directly related to Rome, directly tied to the city of Rome. Uh, That gave them a sense of power, gave them a sense of political purpose. And so many of the monuments that you have in Rome were done in honor of Caesar. For instance, you have uh, the gods represented uh, in Corinth. But they see themselves as tied to Rome, but they're also at the crossroads with Greek culture as well. So you have this this uh, mix of Roman values, power, economy, wealth, and then Greek values in terms of really being, you know, right on the cutting edge in terms of philosophy of the world and, and that type of thing. And so this city is a thriving, wealthy city by the time you get down to Paul's time. Strabo said that Corinth's great wealth was because it was a master of two harbors. And so um, you had a harbor on the north. It's a little bit hard to see the map here, but you have um, a harbor on the north and then a harbor kind of to the southeast of the city. And Uh, You may have had classes or read that one of the things that would happen is a boat could come from Rome, from the west, come to that northern harbor there in Lachium, and, uh, you know, the boat could be taken overland to the other side. Well, uh, recent research has shown that that is probably not the case for the most part. We have a couple of examples in history uh, where a, a military campaign was uh, taking place and you have a huge army and that army is able to take a large boat and kind of move it over uh, that short stretch of land to the other side. But that seems to be very much the exception rather than the rule. Most of the time what would happen during Paul's era is a boat would come from Rome and they would dock and offload their goods there in Lycium, which was just north of the city of Corinth. Uh, and then those uh, goods could be transported over to uh, Sincrea and uh, the port that was down there on the south, and you had warehouses along that area. Uh, so you can imagine if you are the big city that's between those two ports where if people are going from east to west or west to east, they're going to come to you a lot of times to offload their goods, to transport them, uh, because many months of the year you didn't sail. And that's one of the things we'll talk about when we talk about the dating of 2 Corinthians. Um, There were many, you know, about seven or eight months of the year where you literally were taking your life into your own hands and risking all of your goods if you went out and you sailed in the ocean during that period of time. So what they would do is come and they would offload these goods. That was a holding place. And uh, Corinth really profited from that, um, that kind of economic situation. Uh, I want you to think about the fact also that out around the city of Corinth itself, within, say, a 15-mile radius, you have a lot of smaller towns and villages. And many of those smaller towns and villages saw themselves as Corinthian. And that's going to be very significant. You'll notice at the beginning of 2 Corinthians, Paul doesn't write to just the Corinthians. But he also writes to the believers in the whole of Achaia. And I think one of the things we need to keep in mind as we're trying to get our minds around the opponents in Corinth 
is that he's not just dealing with one church or even a group of house churches that were within walking distance of one another. He's dealing with those house churches in the city of Corinth, but also house churches that were dotted around the, the region. And can you, can you think about when you, you start having problem people and false teachers, how it becomes much more difficult to deal with the situation if you have the problem spread throughout a region rather than localized in just one place. And so the city of Corinth um, is it's going to be a wealthy city during his time. It's going to be a city that is uh, related to a lot of other uh, smaller contexts around the area. Now, let's talk a little bit about Corinthian values, Corinthian values. And this is a really important point in trying to understand what's going on in the book. The Corinthian letters make clear that the church in this really impressive city was racked with problems. And more and more, uh, scholars are saying things like this. Many of the faults that you see in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians can be traced to their uncritical acceptance of attitudes, values, and behaviors of society, of the society in which they lived. Does that sound familiar uh, to anybody? Yeah. Uh, You have a situation where you have fairly young believers, and they are, if you will, uh, taking in a lot of media. They, They see things around the city. There have been people speaking publicly all the time in this massive forum down in Corinth. It was the largest in the world, actually. And they're taking all of this stuff in, and they're very shaped by the cultures, the, uh, the cultural values, the practices of their culture. And so, for instance, uh, one of the values that was very celebrated in Corinth was the value of glory and honor. And what you wanted to do is stay away from shame. You didn't want to do anything that brought shame on yourself, but especially on your group. And you wanted to do things that would build your honor as a leader, if you were a leader, or build your honor as um, a, a group or a church in this case. Andrew Clark notes that especially in an urban culture like Corinth. Social progression was inevitably the goal of most people. And Ben Witherington says, In Paul's time, many in Corinth were already suffering from a self-made person escapes humble origins syndrome. And so their drive was to move up the social ladder to become more wealthy and to become more powerful. Now, there were a number of things that you could do to build up that social ladder. And I want you to start thinking about the book of 2 Corinthians uh, in the backdrop here of these kinds of values. Um, If a person was trying to build their social status, they could increase their skill in rhetoric or public speaking. So if you became a very dynamic public speaker... Someone who could really wow the crowd. I mean, just real effective. Then you could move up in your status. In fact, at the Greek games that took place right there on on the Isthmus, the Isthmian games, 
They not only had boxing competitions and races and horse chariot competitions, they had public speaking competitions. Now think about Paul who says people weren't very impressed with his public speaking. It's one of the criticisms that obviously was being made, that he just was not impressive publicly. You could move up the social ladder by your occupation. In fact, leaders did not do manual labor. If you were a person who worked with your hands, that was seen as shameful. If you were a leader, you did not work with your hands. You had the wealth and the status to be able to get other people to do that stuff for you. And that's another key factor. Uh, A leader was someone who was wealthy and therefore could pay for uh, monuments, pay for public events. Uh, They didn't have a, a social or a tax system to put on things for the public. Wealthy people did that. And so if I came to you as a leader, one of the main cases that I would want to be making is I should be your leader because I have the resources to do things for you. And so can you imagine in that context what happens when Paul comes in and says, look, all of you, I'm not going to give you money. I want all of you from the wealthy all the way down to the slave. I want you to contribute to the offering that I'm going to take to Jerusalem. We're going to do something for somebody else. Now, in that cultural context, that would have gone over like a lead balloon because they were looking for leaders who were going to come in and give us resources and add to our situation, right? So you moved up the, up the leadership status uh, ladder, if you will, by being able to, to come, come along with material wealth and splendor. And, and the city of Corinth was filled with impressive buildings and Lots of evidences of wealth. It was a very wealthy city compared to some place like Philippi, for instance, up in Macedonia. It's a very, very wealthy city, and money, money really spoke. So, in short, think about how Paul's humility, his role as a servant, his rejection of patronage, because, again, another way to move up to social status was to associate yourself, to align yourself with a powerful person. When Paul came to town, a powerful person said, hey, I'll pay all your bills. I'll, I'll take care of you. I'll give you a place to stay. And Paul said, no, thanks. Which would have very much offended whoever that leader was in the church. So his rejection of patronage, his rejection of financial gain, his refusal to advance his own status by the use of rhetorical skills, all of those things would have worked against him. Now, let me push the pause button just for a second and ask us to think about our context in terms of leadership. Are our conceptions of leadership driven more by biblical values or the values of the culture. Let me just just think about that just for a minute. The things that drive us in terms of how we look to leaders, think about leaders, respond to leaders, 
are we driven by really biblical values there or are we primarily driven by the values of the culture? I do do an exercise with my New Testament students when we're dealing with the pastoral epistles and I have them get together in small groups and they write out uh, if they were on a search committee at their church looking for a pastor. What would what would be the job description that the church committee came up with? Uh, what would be the description of the person? If you could have your ideal person who uh, would come and lead your church, what would that person look like? And so they spend time and they get all of these things written out. And what would you imagine are some of the things that they would say in that exercise? Does anybody have an idea? Dynamic speaker, almost number one. Okay, sometimes they want a person who's going to be attractive to people on the outside. Uh, I would not have fit their job description at that point, but right. What else? Somebody who is very well educated would be best. What else? Okay, times married. Yes. Yep. There's yeah. Vision might be uh, a thing that they would bring up. Normally, somebody who can lead others well. Right. Those kind of things. Uh, (laughs) Under age 40. Well, not always. Uh, Sometimes that's the case. Sometimes we want experience. Right. Um, But when you get all of those things. to, Yeah. Well, and, and that's kind of the point of the exercise. Now, are those bad questions to ask? No, those aren't bad questions. But what we do then is we look at the description that Paul gives in the pastoral epistles of the requirements for leadership. Do you know there are only two skills on the list? Teaching and how you handle your family in terms of leading your family. Two skills. Everything else has to do with character and the person's spiritual gravitas, if you will, their, their uh, maturity spiritually. Everything else is related to that. Now, again, I don't say that to say that, that we ought to ditch the way that we normally do search processes, but it does say something about how those search processes are shaped by the values that we have in American culture at the beginning of the 21st century. And we need to allow, we need to be living deeply in the Scripture so that Scripture is pushing back against our just natural tendencies because of the cultural air that we breathe. Does that make sense? And I think one of the things that Second Corinthians does we're going to find that over and over and over again, Paul flips the cultural values on their head. And at times, he has the ability to use the cultural value. For instance, I think Paul was trained in rhetoric. But he's going to get to a place a little bit later on where he's going to, in essence, say, I choose not to use those skills because I don't want your Christian faith to be built on my, you know, impressive ways of speaking. I want you to be grounded in the gospel in a relationship with Jesus. So uh, there were these relationship values that uh, that are these cultural values that really affect and shaped the Corinthians. And Paul's trying to push back with relationship values, gospel values, and trying to model those values for the Corinthians as he works his way through the book. Now, let's talk for a minute about uh, Paul's relationship with the Corinthians and uh, what I would call a tight chronology. You actually have this in your handout, one of those first sheets that you were given there, kind of pulled together 
um, just some basic dates. So let me highlight a few of these dates here, and uh, then we're going to talk about the logic of the book. Now, let me just say that my um, approach to the chronology is what I would call a tight chronology. There are some people that would date a couple of these event, uh, events a year later than I would. Um, my tight chronology, you know, is, is that. It's, it's saying if, if everything kind of went smoothly and Paul was moving from place to place, this is what it would look like. Um, so here's my chronology. Spring of 50, Paul arrives in Corinth for the first time. Probably that spring. Um, he's come on around uh, through Macedonia and come down to the city of Corinth. Late spring of 52, he arrives in Ephesus for a period of extensive ministry. So he, he is in Corinth in that initial period. He's going to stay there for about 18 months, about a year and a half. He's going to go back. And then on what we call the third missionary journey, he in essence moves his base of operations to the city of Ephesus for an extensive period of ministry. I think sometime, probably, that summer or fall, Paul receives news of the Corinthians, and he writes uh, what is called the previous letter. Uh, we refer to it as that. Uh, he mentions it in 1 Corinthians um, 5, 9. And he's written to them uh, to deal with some issues, some questions that they have. And then he writes uh, 1 Corinthians and sends it to Corinth. Um, in the summer or autumn of 53. By the time we get to early spring of 54, Timothy has arrived in Corinth and the church is a mess. Things are not good. They haven't responded very well to, to what Paul instructed them to do in 1 Corinthians. Things are really not going very well. So in late spring of 54, once shipping opens, Paul travels over to Corinth for what we're going to call the sorrowful visit. Now, this is referred to in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. Uh, Paul talks about this very difficult time when he came to Corinth and there was some kind of conflict, probably with a leader there in the church. Uh, it seems that probably this leader in the church publicly confronted Paul and things did not go well. It was, a, it was kind of a, an emotionally difficult time for Paul and for the church. And so Paul calls that uh, the sorrowful visit, and he immediately goes back to Ephesus, perhaps uh, at the very end of the spring. Then in summer of 54, Titus reports to Paul in Ephesus, and Paul writes the sorrowful letter. So Titus comes over and just, again, says things are really, really difficult, and Paul writes... Um, the sorrowful letter, which is referred to in 2 Corinthians 2, 3, and 4, where he just puts everything on the line and writes uh, a very harsh letter, probably, in which he is confronting the Corinthians and saying, you guys need to get your act together and you need to deal with these uh, very dysfunctional uh, patterns that you have in the church. Uh, in autumn or winter of 54, 55, you have ministry in Troas and then Macedonia. So Paul is going to leave Ephesus and start his way around through Macedonia, and that's when he is going to write 2 Corinthians. Now, we're going to find that he actually had told the Corinthians that he was going to come back through Corinth on his way to Macedonia. 
and he changes his plans. And so he hears that one of the criticisms of him is, oh, you can't trust Paul. He's wishy-washy. He told us he was going to come back and spend some time with us here before going to Macedonia. Instead of doing that, he just goes north to Macedonia. And so Paul writes 2 Corinthians, in part explaining why he changed his plans, but also dealing with the ongoing problem of these false teachers. And then eventually he's going to come around in January or March 56, and he's going to stay in Corinth for about three months before then going on and completing this trip. Does that make some sense? Just kind of getting big picture of the flow and the development of things. So the, the short answer is that 2 Corinthians is a book that was written kind of in the heat of things breaking down relationally, breaking down in the ministry, the threat of a false gospel being there in Corinth. And Paul is trying to address uh, this very, very difficult situation through this letter. All right, very briefly, let's talk about the logic of the book and uh, just kind of the development of the structure of 2 Corinthians. And I think this can kind of begin to help us get our, our minds around the what feels at times like jerky movement in the book as you move from one section to the next. The first seven chapters, you can think of all three of these movements in 2 Corinthians as various ways of preparing for Paul coming. Remember, he's, he's traveling through Macedonia. He's going to be coming back to Corinth at some point. And so each of these movements in the structure of the book prepare for his coming in a different way. The first movement in chapters 1 through 7 prepare for his coming. He's saying, you guys get ready for my coming by getting your theological legs under you again. Uh, get back to a point where you understand the nature of authentic Christian ministry. And so he, he takes the center section of the book especially to lay that theological foundation saying, if you want to see what real Christian ministry is, this is what it looks like from a theological standpoint. And so you have this uh, situation where they are preparing for his coming by getting their act together in their thinking theologically. Now, listen, folks, you know this. But the reality is that that all of us, you and I, people in our churches, all of us live out of the way that we really think about the world and the things that we believe. Our, Our way of seeing the world, our worldview really drives the decisions that we make. And what, when you especially see that in ministry is when the pleasures or the pressures of life really come to bear, then people are going to default to the way they really see the world. They may have a Christian veneer in what they're doing, but that veneer will collapse under the weight of the pressures or the pleasures that they experience in the world. Uh, At Union, what we're trying to do is we're trying to give an education that is integrated. Uh, In our area, we do teach people who are going into the ministry, and I I love that. I get to spend time every day with people going into the ministry. My wife and I have about 20 students into our home every other week. 
just for a meal, and we just hang out together, and that's great. But more and more, we're seeing the importance of also students from across the dis- disciplines in the university, nursing students, people who are going to be doctors, lawyers, business people, uh, people doing all these other disciplines, minoring in Christian studies so that they can begin getting a strong foundation biblically and theologically for being normal people out there in the world who are carrying forth the gospel, advancing God's kingdom in the marketplace and in all, all kinds of settings in the world. And it's uh, really important for us to think about how we are grounding people biblically and theologically, uh, how they are being shaped by a vision of the Scriptures so that the, that vision is pushing back, again, against our natural tendencies given our background or upbreaking, our cultural context and that kind of thing. So Paul is trying to give them that foundation first. Secondly... Uh, chapters 8 and 9 prepare for his coming by the Corinthians getting the collection together for the saints in Jerusalem. He spends two chapters on helping them think through their commitment to significant giving. And he's going to use the Macedonians as a positive example. He's going to talk about why he sent Titus and the delegation ahead of himself Uh, And then he's going to just have this wonderful, rich section on principles of giving in chapter nine. We're going to we're going to take a time and look at that a little bit later on. So he says, get ready. I'm coming back. I don't want you to be embarrassed. You made a commitment to this last year and the accountability is coming. I'm about to show up. And then the final section of the book uh, deals with preparation in the sense of dealing with these false teachers. And you do have a a dramatic shift in tone as he moves from chapter 9 into chapter 10. Uh, In the past, uh, there were scholars who said, oh, well, this is a a sign that 2 Corinthians is really fragmented. It's not one letter. It's a whole bunch of letters or at least two or three. But uh, studies have really shown in recent years uh, the trends are moving back to seeing 2 Corinthians as a unity. And one of the reasons for seeing that is it was common in the ancient world that uh, when you were dealing with problem people in a public speech, you saved them for the last. And you kind of laid your groundwork by building, you know, kind of relational cash with your audience and that kind of thing. And then you came around to the end. There's one place where Cicero says, uh, he gets to the end of a speech and he says, now, there's some people who've had some bad things to say about me. Let me talk about them for a few minutes. And he really zeroes in on those people who were his opponents in the political sphere. That's kind of what Paul does here. I think he uh, gives the theological foundation to the Corinthians. He uh, then talks to the general Corinthian body who I believe were still with him. But then he moves to dealing with these problem teachers who were still influencing a minority, probably a significant minority in the church. And he says, look, guys, it's time to deal with these jokers and and not allow them to continue uh, harassing you spiritually and even physically. Evidently, they were the false teachers were coming in and kind of sapping them of their resources and even even kind of being ugly to them in public if they didn't line up with what the false teachers were saying. And so he spends these last four chapters saying, get ready for my coming. 
by addressing the problem of these false teachers. And so that final uh, section really addresses that. Now, I want to, I want to wrap up this first um, session with you, and I appreciate your patience as we've kind of worked our way through um, this, you know, basic stuff on the backdrop of the book. But I want to wrap up this first section by uh, giving you a, a little bit of historical fiction. Now, it's based on rigorous study of the context and um, the situation described in the book. But I decided to actually start my commentary. This is how I begin my commentary, which is kind of an unusual way for starting a commentary. I did this uh, on a commentary on Hebrews a number of years ago, and and people responded to it very well. So I thought uh, this is a good way of drawing us all into the fact that 2 Corinthians was not written just as a theological treatise or a letter that Paul kind of dashes off into a situation uh, which was not very emotionally charged. I want us to kind of get the feel for what people on the ground in Corinth would have been experiencing right before 2 Corinthians came to him. Okay, so let me uh, let me just have you uh, have you follow along with me here. And uh, Law, we're fine with the uh, video at this point, so we'll figure out why that's doing that uh, in the break. But listen to the story. Listen to the story that follows. Um, a man named Stephanus, who was a young leader in the church in Corinth. As he stepped onto the gravel of the Lycaeum Road, heading south from the Asclepion back to the Forum, Stephanus was still a bit rattled by the meeting, not used to such a confrontational discussion with such a powerful man. Why in the world does Lucius want to meet at the Asclepion? His wife, Alba, had wondered that morning as they had breakfast in the garden. From the slight rise on which their cranium neighborhood sat, the view of Corinth spread out before them in all its vastness like a giant patchwork quilt, draping the landscape flowing down to the Lycaeum port. Stephanus loved this city. It was flourishing, and his business had flourished along with it. The wild mix of travelers, tourists, merchants from all over the world, ports crowned with exotic goods, new buildings going up as the great men tried to outdo each other, their wonderful, plentiful baths and springs, their enviable sewage system. Horace had written, it is not the privilege of every man to visit Corinth. But he lived here. He may not be one of the elite, but as a successful merchant, Stephanus felt great pride In this wealthy city of thousands, there were the desperately poor, of course, a number of them now associated with the church, but opportunities for the population generally were greater in Corinth than in most places. And since Paul had come with the gospel, Stephanus saw his place and his prosperity, his purpose in the world in a very new light. Of course, Stephanus knew why Lucius Felix had chosen the Asclepion. It was a lovely place, the complex dedicated to the healing God. Stephanus had attended weddings there from time to time. Out from the city center and near the northern wall, the temple grounds were beautifully groomed, comfortable, and quiet. It was an obvious way of getting out to a place for a difficult talk. But there was more to this situation. It was an obvious way of pushing back. Not even a veiled attempt at pushing back. 
When Paul's letter had arrived last year, Lucius had heard it read and then read it himself. In that letter, the apostle had answered many of the church's pressing questions, including the one about eating meat from a temple. So Lucius was quite aware of Paul's perspective. The Asclepion was a nice place to eat, of course, one of the nicest in the city. But the temple meat roasting in that temple was not the draw for Lucius. No, the Asclepion was a defiant retreat of sorts at which to talk about Lucius's ongoing concerns with Paul. Concerns that had been building ever since the undignified tent maker who dirtied his hands with manual labor had refused Lucius's patronage. So as he kicked gravel along the Lacayam Road some 400 paces back into the city's heart, Stephanus thought back through the day and how that difficult conversation had unfolded. That morning, Stephanus had walked from home to the city center to conduct business before the meeting. Having passed Maximus's tavern on his left, he entered the forum from the southwest end. He had greeted Erastus briefly. The city treasurer walked briskly past the area in front of Apollo and Aphrodite's temples. He was on his way to an office in the South Stoa, weaving through a crowd of shoppers, priests, tourists, merchants, heading in all directions. The forum, almost 200 paces long and some 125 paces deep on the west end, was massive by anyone's estimation, a wide open space of buzz and bustle. As he continued, Stephanus made a quick stop at a banker in one of the forum center shops and then on to a jeweler to pick up a gift for his daughter, Theodora. He had seen Achaeus and Chloe talking just across the forum's east end, near the Perrine Fountain. Stephanus made his way over to them and told them about the meeting that was taking place with Lucius, asking for prayer. Each of the three had been staunch defenders of Paul and had spoken out boldly during Titus's recent visit. Following that gut-wrenching letter from Paul that had drawn most of the house churches firmly back to the apostles' side, they uh, found that none of them embraced the illusion that tensions in the church were laid to rest. Matters were so complex, so difficult to work through with people coming and going in the household groups throughout the city and the region. The church was still very young, not quite five years old, and the blend of classes, education, cultural backgrounds, personalities, and levels of spiritual maturity could be dynamic but fragile. The majority of the house groups in the city, as well as those from Tania, Sincrea, and Cromna, resolutely made a fresh commitment to the apostle and his mission. Unfortunately, the group at Cromnion had remained cold toward Paul. Several who continued in sexually immoral behavior were in that house, as had the small group led by Lucius's steward and, of course, the group of students from the school of Alexandrus, among whom was Lucius's oldest son. But generally, the response to Paul's heart-rending letter had been positive, and Titus left two weeks later to give the apostle that news. So this morning, as the sun had climbed toward noon, Stephanus had continued his walk toward the Asclepion, past the North Market and the theater, out through blocks of shops and homes, and finally arriving at his destination. 
Lucius had reserved a private room and had ordered food. He had with him David and Samuel, wise professional speakers, as Lucius liked to refer to them, men who had even won some of the notoriety in the Rator competitions at the games last spring. They and a number of their disciples had arrived from the east two years ago, shortly before Paul had arrived in Ephesus, bringing with them recommendation letters from obscure leaders back east. Like Apollos, David, and Samuel obviously had advanced training in rhetoric. They were good speakers by most standards of the culture. But unlike the Alexandrian, the content of their preaching always seemed spiritless, devoid of the gospel message and of power. Though words about Jesus and the gospel were used at times, there was no substance to the teaching, no clear doctrine, no ethical foundations for their living. Their speaking entertained but did nothing to promote mission or righteous living or community. It just seemed to focus mainly on the exalted Jesus as a means to glory and success and status. Some had been taken in and were increasingly under their harsh influence And now these impressive public speakers were aligned with Lucius. The meeting had not gone well. The arguments against Paul presented by Lucius and the other two had sounded very reasonable. Stephanus had heard most of them before. The church was acting unwisely, unreasonably. Paul's critics sounded hurt, offended by the apostles' arrogance, his inattention to social conventions, his teaching, and especially his wishy-washy character. In short, they tagged Paul as a weak, ineffective leader who had brought on the current crisis in the church. David and Samuel appealed to Stephanus' Jewish background, a heritage they shared and of which they were very proud. Honestly, Stephanus felt bullied, cowed by the confrontation, and was glad when the meeting was behind him. Although the majority of the church were firmly committed to the apostle, these pockets of opposition were worrisome. Powerful and gifted people were involved. As he continued now back south into the city's heart, Stephanus had business at his warehouse that needed attention. He needed to check on a shipment of Italian lamps that should have arrived in port yesterday, and he needed Crestus to follow up on an order of glazed bowls from the Physicians Consortium. Stephanus stopped at a public latrine and felt like visiting the baths to wash away the tension of the last hour If only dealing with Paul's opponents could be so easy. He wished the apostle would come back to Corinth or at least send another letter. Well, he did. (laughs) And that's what we're looking at today in this book of 2 Corinthians. All right, what I want us to do is uh, we're going to go ahead and take a 15-minute break. Uh, When we come back, I'm going to give you a chance to ask uh, questions just for a minute or two. If you have a question or two. Um, and we'll deal with those for a minute, and then we're going to go on and look at the first movement of the book and get down into that very wonderful, rich passage about the God of all comfort or encouragement there in chapter 1. Okay, so let's take a break, 15 minutes. We'll see you back in just, just a few minutes.